Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When people hear the word religion, it means different things to different people. It really depends a lot on what their life experiences have been when it comes to experiencing churches or interacting with people who are very religious. And so it means different things to different people. Some people find it appealing and other people do not find it appealing. Some people actually despise anything that might be religious at all. And I can appreciate why people would feel that way, because in many cases they have some good reasons for it. In other cases, however, there are no good reasons for it, that religion in a general sense can actually be a good thing. It really depends on the circumstances that people have had. It depends on the situations that they've been in and the relationships that they have had. And so it really is a case-by-case situation. As for myself, though, whenever I think of the word religion, it does mean something to me personally, and that has to do with the root meaning of the word, that the word actually has a root meaning to it. And that is that it is a system of bondage. It is a system of bondage of some kind. Now, bondage can be viewed in a number of different ways. Some people like to have bondage. Some people enjoy having a system of bondage, either for themselves or for others. There is an attraction. There is an appeal when it comes to the subject of bondage because some people do need to be put under a form of bondage or they do need to be put under control in some way probably because they're out of control in other ways. But the system of bondage has to be defined in some way. So how do people define their systems of bondage? Well, the definition of bondage or the system that people derive, I believe can be described with another word, and that is the word law. In order to have a system of bondage, you really have to have a law of some kind. And these laws, they have to do with what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what you should be doing and what happens if you do something wrong. What will the penalty be in the event that you violate one of the laws? When you look at it from that point of view, there are many different religions that exist in the world today and have existed in times past, and they can all be defined by the system of law that they employ in order to put people in bondage, either themselves or somebody else. That it is established by some system of law, and there has to be a penalty for violating these laws, otherwise they're not really laws, they're more like suggestions of some kind. They fit into the realm of philosophy, I suppose, as opposed to religion, if we were to look at it from a different point of view. But in this case, what I would really like to focus on is this notion of religion. And I want you to understand that there is great appeal in religion for many people. There is great appeal. And the reason why is because people can obtain an advantage by their religion. They can obtain benefit from religion. People don't normally 
commit themselves to things that they don't obtain any benefit from, there is significant benefit that can be obtained in religion. And this is why it exists. It exists because there is benefit that people can experience. From the point of view of a system of law, what is what is the benefit that they can experience? Well, the most obvious benefit that most people see from the outside, that is, the most obvious benefit is that they can have a reason or an excuse or a justification to control other people. And the reason why they can have the ability to control other people is because they have a system of law. They have a system of right and wrong, of good and evil. And a system of good and evil requires someone to live in obedience to this system of good and evil. They need somebody to obey the laws. Now, there is an advantage to them personally because they might be able to get other people to obey these laws. I'll talk about what it means for them to obey the laws in just a moment. But one of the motives that people have in religion is to find laws or find rules or regulations of some kind, find something that they can use in order to control those people who are around them. They usually do this through condemnation, and they call upon divine judgment if you do not comply. But what they do is they effectively use it in order to manipulate or control or encourage or inspire other people who are around them. There is great value for many people because they believe that they will be able to get other people under control through their pursuit of, through their understanding of, and through their application of religion. Now, from the outside, people don't enjoy other people condemning them. They don't normally enjoy other people trying to control and manipulate them. It's very unusual to find someone who really enjoys that unless they're willing to subject themselves voluntarily to the religion that they are deciding to subject themselves to. And so there normally is a division between the people who are a part of the religion and those who are not a part of the religion. And sometimes there are people who defect from the religion to go back into the world because they realize that they are not benefiting as much as they thought they were. And there might also be people who are outside of the religion who might decide to defect from the world and become a part of the religion because they believe that they can benefit by controlling other people around them like those people do. So that's one of the appeals, one of the attractions of religion, is that you can use it in order to change other people who are around you in some way. Now, this doesn't work out, of course, because the only way that a person is really going to experience a transformation of some kind from who they are into somebody else in general is if divine intervention is involved, which means that the living God has to do it personally, that you cannot do that on his behalf, that you're not the one who's going to decide for them what is going to happen to them or how that's going to happen, that this has to be a personal experience between them and their God. Normally, there is no other way. Now, the other reason why people find religion to be very appealing for them personally is because they will have the opportunity to compare themselves with other people. So the first motive is generally to be able to control other people, but the second motive doesn't really have anything to do with control. Instead, it has to do with people being able to build up their own personal pride for their success 
in being able to live in obedience to the laws to comply with the system of bondage that they decide to subject themselves to. Now, there is great appeal in being able to do this because if you can succeed in abiding by whatever laws you subject yourself to, then you can compare yourself with other people. And when you compare yourself with other people, then, of course, you're going to feel a lot better about yourself. You're going to see yourself as being a higher quality of an individual, especially in comparison with these other people, and you're going to be able to look down on them. You're going to be able to ridicule them and show contempt towards them. You're going to be able to do that legitimately because of your beliefs concerning how a person should live and how a person should not live. This is one of the attractions of religion. Now, who are the kinds of people who would participate in something like this? I mean, what kind of a person do you really need to have in order to get them to participate in this type of religion, in religion in this context? Well, to find someone who wants to control, manipulate, and change other people, then you have to find someone who has that kind of an attitude towards other people, that they don't like other people, that they want other people to change, and they believe that it is their purpose in life to change other people. Now, I certainly can understand the need that people have to experience some change, but again, I sincerely believe that this should be done between them and their God, not between us and them. So what kind of a person would participate in a system like that, in a belief like that? This kind of person has to be a mean person. You really need to have a mean and cruel individual to get them to participate in something like that. What I mean by a mean and cruel individual is that this is an individual who has decided to condemn other people, to be mean and cruel to other people by telling them how evil they are and how much they hate them, how much they despise them, how much they have contempt for them because they are sinning, because they are evil. I mean, you really have to have a special person who is willing to do that, who is willing to devote their lives to that kind of a purpose, to go out and devote themselves to changing other people and using law and religion to do that. You have to find a mean person. I mean, they really have to be mean deep down inside to do that. Now, I personally don't have a problem with telling people that they are sinners, that they are evil. I don't have a problem with doing that. I don't have a problem with telling people that they are violating the law of God, that God is going to send them to hell. I don't have a problem with that as long as it is done constructively as long as it would be done in a way that would lead a person to the mercy of God. But that is not what's going on from a religious point of view. From a religious point of view, what people are doing is they are doing that for the purpose of condemning an individual so they will submit to them. So they will submit to the person who is being mean. And that is not what I believe a person should be using the law for. I believe that they should be using the law in order to drive a person to the point of despair so that they will turn to God. But other people are using the law to drive them to despair so that those people will turn to them, or they will turn to the pastor, or they will turn to the church, they will turn to the law, but not necessarily God. 
That's a distinction. That's a difference that sometimes is difficult to identify until you really take some time to explore an individual circumstance. Right now, I'm just speaking in generalities. Now, when it comes to an individual who will adopt religion in their life for the purpose of being able to compare themselves with others and show how impressive they are and show how holy and righteous they are, there are people like that. You've got to have a mean person. You really need a mean person to participate in something like that. I mean, why would anyone want to compare themselves with other people so that they can feel better about themselves? That is a form of cruelty. That is a form of violence in some ways to use somebody else in order to puff up your pride, in order to make yourself look better. Effectively, you have to step on someone in order to elevate yourself. You are elevating yourself at the expense of somebody else. That requires a mean person. This is why you will find many mean and cruel individuals in religion. Now, of course, I'm not saying that everyone who is in religion is a mean and cruel person. Of course, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there is an appeal in religion that attracts and draws in many mean and cruel people. And you need to be aware of this. Now, how do they view this? How do these kinds of people justify these kinds of attitudes that they have towards other people? Well, the word that usually shows up, even if it's not officially used, the word that normally shows up is the word righteousness. That's the word that is normally applied to this, that there is a righteousness that people are trying to obtain or that they believe that they will obtain. And through this righteousness, they will be able to use this as their credentials to be mean to other people. Another word that's used is holiness. Holiness is another word that's applied in this way. Now, of course, I don't have a problem with holiness. I don't have a problem with righteousness. I think holiness and righteousness are wonderful things. But what do we know about holiness according to the gospel? Well, according to the gospel, holiness is only experienced through our God. He is the only one who is holy. And when he finds a way to work within and through us, there may be the appearance that there is some holiness within us. But the truth of the matter is, is that it is only his holiness that is being reflected off of us. And righteousness. What is righteousness according to the scriptures? Righteousness is the righteousness of God. And he declares people to be righteous only when they believe their God. Not when they obey commandments not when they do that which is right and they don't do that which is wrong, not when people obey laws or they conform themselves to a system of bondage. No, righteousness is only established by an individual who believes and trusts in their God, who believes what he has said and they live their lives according to the truth that he has revealed, that their life is a reflection of their belief in him, in what he has said, in what he has done. And this has nothing to do with what they say or with what they do. It is completely dependent on a person believing in God. 
the definition for righteousness was described through Abraham, that when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. And throughout the scriptures, the testimony of our God is that righteousness is obtained in no other way. So when a person pursues a life of bondage in order to justify themselves, to claim or esteem righteousness in some way, when a person pursues things like that, they are never going to be able to experience the true righteousness that God wants us to experience until they put that aside. Because the law stirs up sin, the law stirs up pride, and the law turns a person further and further away from their God, either because of shame and condemnation or because of perceived success, perceived success in what they think they have accomplished. So religion can be very hazardous. There are many hazards and traps. There are many things that people need to be aware of when it comes to this subject. And one of the examples that we have concerning religion historically in the scriptures is definitely the religious Jews. The Jews who were very religious, who were devoted to living their lives according to the law of Moses, they found themselves in this situation. They were very zealous. They were very zealous towards the law and towards God. They were committed. They were devoted. When a person was recognized as a Pharisee, you know, in the public realm during this time, a Pharisee was not considered to be an evil person. A Pharisee was not considered to be a person that we would ridicule or condemn in the church today that has somewhat evolved, mainly because of the way that Jesus spoke to them. But he spoke to them for the purpose of showing them that they were not successful. He didn't speak to them so that he could have somebody to compare himself with. He didn't speak to them to try to get them under control. He declared the truth to them so that they would see another truth, and that was that they needed to be saved. But they were a very good example. They are a very good example of people who were devoted, who were committed. I mean, you really had to be committed. You had to be devoted. You had to really commit yourself in a way that very few people are capable of doing so. There was something impressive about Pharisees during this time, that they were so determined to be zealous for God and zealous for the law. They were so determined that they were willing to give their entire lives for it. And in that way, you should consider having some respect for them, for the Pharisees as people. Some respect. The sad thing is, the disappointing thing is, is that what they were attempting to obtain, they were never able to obtain. What they were attempting to accomplish, they were never really able to accomplish. Now, they believed that they were successful. They believed that. But again, if we were to examine the testimony of the Lord Jesus, he shares with us very clearly that they were not. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, and he had a significant desire to see them experience his God, our God, in the way that Paul experienced him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Speaking about his brethren, those who were Jews, who he knew in Israel, and others who he did not know, he wanted them to be saved. But just because they were Jewish didn't mean that they were going to be saved. 
He wanted them to be saved. In verse 2 he says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They had a zeal for God. They were committed, but they did not know the things that God wanted them to know. And the evidence for that is that they did not recognize the Messiah when the Messiah came. That is the evidence. That is the proof. That regardless of how zealous a person is, regardless of how committed they are, how devoted they are, that doesn't mean that they're going to know the God who wants them to know him. In verse 2, he testifies about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. You know, in some ways, you could say that they were not zealous enough. They were not zealous enough in some ways, because if they were zealous enough, if they were committed like they really needed to be, then they would have eventually reached the point of absolute despair, recognizing their failures. That is definitely one way to look at it, that perhaps they were not as committed as they should have been, as they claimed to be. But that's another subject. What I would like to address right now is in verse 2, he speaks about knowledge. He speaks about having knowledge of God. Now, I want you to consider that there is a big difference between knowing about your God and knowing your God. There is a big difference between those two things. There's a huge difference between the two. Knowing about your God can be accomplished just by reading through the scriptures. That you can see the testimony of him, you can see what he did, what he said, you can see how he interacted with people. There's a lot you can know about your God. There's a lot of knowledge that can be obtained. You know, many of the Pharisees memorized the scriptures. By the age of 25 in some groups, they will have memorized the entire Old Testament, all of the scriptures, From Genesis to Malachi, they would have memorized all of it. But just because they memorized all of it, they quoted all of it, that didn't necessarily mean that they knew God as a person. They may know about him, they may know what he has said and what he has done, but that doesn't mean that they know him. For example, consider yourself. There are a lot of people who probably know about you. They know about the things that you have done. They know about the things that you have said. They may know about you in some ways, but do they really know you? No, they don't really know you. Do they see the world through your eyes? No. Do they hear the world through your ears? Do they understand what you understand? Even if they don't agree with you, do they at least understand how you perceive the world that you are a part of? And the answer is no. And that's what I mean by the distinction between knowing about your God and knowing your God, that those are two completely different things. When it comes to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is known and understood when you see it through his eyes. When you understand that righteousness can only be accomplished in us through our belief and trust in him, that it will never exist when a person subjects themselves to a system of bondage, that that is a difference between knowing about your God and knowing your God. This can be understood in a small way through our use of the word righteousness. Now, in Romans chapter 10, Paul speaks about righteousness. He uses the word righteousness a lot. But this is something that is very difficult to really understand unless you understand religion, systems of law, and the pursuit of righteousness that the people were involved in during that time. 
He uses righteousness because he wants people to see that there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. That there is a difference between the life under the law and the life in Christ. For example, in verse 3 he says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And then he goes on and he speaks about a number of other things. I want you to see this, though, that to really appreciate righteousness and to appreciate Paul's use of the word at the beginning of Romans chapter 10, you really have to understand something about religion, the potential traps of religion, the appeal of religion, and what people perceive righteousness to be. That when you think of it as something that you obtain because of your repentance and obedience, it really isn't the righteousness that our God is truly interested in. That is something that he might use in order to demonstrate to us that we are not righteous. But there is something more than that, and that is to turn people to the true righteousness of God that he wants us to experience, which is his righteousness within and through us, reflected off of us because of our belief and trust in him in what he has accomplished. And then we can once again be a reflection of our God. When he initially created humanity, he created us to be a reflection of him. When he made mankind, he made mankind, he made people to be in his image. And that word meant a reflection so that we might reflect him, so that others can see who he is, so that the invisible God who has created the universe and all that is within it can be manifested in a physical, visible, audible way, so that people can truly begin to know the depths of his heart, so that they can see the world through his eyes. They can understand what he hears through his ears, so that we may know the depths of his heart. He created us to be a reflection of him, so that he could reveal himself as he would live his life within and through us. And when we turn to him and realize that he is the end of righteousness, that he is the end of the law, but again, this is also a beginning so that we can be the recipients of his love and acceptance and reflect his love and acceptance through our hearts in such a way that others might know him. And I will continue in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net